0: it's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends well it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson.
1: When people think of great relationships or great connections in life, I think that one thing that people probably don't go to is the idea of rejection. But I think, Taylor, when we first first met, you were working at the cafe, the raw vegan cafe called Raw Evolution in Santa Monica. And I remember the first time seeing you there, I was like, she's really hot and she's got great tattoos and she's working at a raw vegan restaurant. I need to say hi, and I need a line for this woman. And of course, being the goofball and buffoon that I am, the only line that I could think of was, where'd you get your tattoos? And you look down at me, you're like, Atlanta, and you just walked away. So I just want to say 12 years in as a friend and confidant and collaborator in this world, our relationship started off with an element of rejection.
0: (laughs) Wow, such a good story. Love you so much, Jason. And I'm glad you were able to stick around for so long to be here with me. So I really appreciate you.
1: Yeah, it's been a wonderful thing. I think when you have friends in your lives for so long, around a decade or more, you have so many stories and so many iterations. And see a person through so many evolutions. And one of the reasons that we're so excited to have you here, Taylor, you know, Whitney and I have known you for so many years and so many versions and iterations and, and permutations of who you have become and who you are as a being. And I'm excited to dig into just all aspects of life and, you know, what you're doing now, because recently I had the great pleasure of experiencing for the very first time A combo ceremony. And one of the things that Whitney and I, of course, love to dig into here on the podcast is the element of mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual wellness and the intersection of all of those modalities. And for about two years, it was this idea of exploring plant medicines and having discussions about it. We have a couple of episodes about ayahuasca and we touch on the healing benefits of plant medicines here. And for me, it was just one of those things I think, I don't know, I wasn't ready for. It's almost this conversation. And I think Whitney will have some ideas on this of you're ready for things when you're ready for things. And the ceremony I had with you recently, I just, I don't think I was ready for it until recently. And it was a good lesson before we get into the details of what you're up to in the world and this healing medicine. I think it's just a good thing to start off with not forcing yourself to think you're ready for something before you are. I know that's kind of a nuanced subject, but that's just what came up for me organically.
0: Yeah, I really love that. And I've been exploring this medicine for quite a long time. I mean, my plant medicine journeys actually began in 2006. And it was funny because I was invited to the Amazon jungle, and I was told that I needed to go to the Amazon jungle and work with plant medicine by this uh, mutual friend that we both have named Troy Casey. And so me and Troy Casey went down to the Amazon together early on, and that was my original journey. And combo came a lot later. And it's really fascinating. It's a little bit different where people, you know, the readiness. I mean, if you are being called at any point to sit, if you are even feeling inspired in any way to sit, or even pushing yourself to sit, you are in the perfect place at the perfect time. That's my belief. And I don't know, what do you think about that, Jason? What was your experience like?
1: It's this thing of like readiness in general is such a fascinating thing because are we ever, quote, really ready for anything? I think of that in terms of perhaps facing a challenge or a crisis in life or something I don't have any direct experience with but have a fear of, which is parenthood. We actually have a really interesting episode about parenthood with our mutual friend, Adam Yasmin. We'll link to that in the show notes at com. But I don't know, this idea of readiness, it's this weird thing because I think we can hold ourselves back in one sense of convincing ourselves through fear that we're not ready for something, but then just going for it. I don't know. It's this fine line of like, hey, am I ready for this or should I just go for it and jump off the cliff? I mean, Whitney, what's your thoughts on that of like this idea of, oh, I'm not ready yet versus just going for it?
2: Hmm. I think that there's this cliche answer of we're never ready for anything. (laughs) You You hear this a lot, like you said, with parenthood. And I feel like a lot of the human challenges are based in wanting to prepare and having expectations. And also I think this desire to feel ready is often centered around wanting to control things. So we think that if we can prepare for something, this actually came up in a recent recording as well. I had read that quote about how research is just another word for postpone. Research is a lot of like preparation. Like if I have enough, enough information, then I will feel emotionally, mentally prepared for something. <laughs> but sometimes we use that preparation as an excuse for procrastination or resistance. And I have definitely seen this come up a lot for myself.
0: I completely agree with you, Whitney, because I know that there's never actually any moment where we have everything that we think we finally need. And then we're going to be ready. Then we can like step into it. And maybe if we do, like if we think we have all the right information or we've read someone's info packet or we've done enough practice or whatever the case may be, then we can step into something and feel safe. But it all has to do with the fact that safety is ultimately an illusion. Safety exists moment to moment. All we can understand how to cultivate is the feeling of safety in our own body, no matter what's happening. And we do that by strengthening our nervous system. And so that's how we feel readiness for what life continues to throw at us or invite us to participate in moment to moment.
1: So strengthening the nervous system, you hit on that, that jumped out at me, Taylor, in that comment of what are some ways that we can do that either through nutritional ways or medicinal ways or spiritual ways, when you talk about strengthening that nervous system, I assume you're talking about obviously when we're having good time in life or life is going well, we're not really thinking about the strength of our nervous system. It's more like probably times of crisis or things we deem or label as such or times of uncertainty or times of just dealing with the unknowns of life. So what are some ways then that you have found beneficial to strengthen one's nervous system?
0: Yeah. So we call this work of strengthening the nervous system as walking on the razor's edge. And I want us to begin to consider that if we walk on the razor's edge, we're constantly prepared to have what we need to manage the situation. And so we can of course, do breath work. We can do yogic practices. But to be perfectly honest, it's our ability to deal with crisis, swift change, heartbreak, the loss of a loved one, so death or sickness. When we have those moments in our life And we're faced with them, we're faced with dealing with them. We have the choice of to show up and deal with them and to manage them and to find out how to gather the most energy without crumbling or we crumble. And so, how we manage that in the moment can strengthen our nervous system. And I know all of us have been through some form of death, loss, challenge, tragedy, heartbreak, struggle. And we've all gotten through them. So that life itself makes us stronger if we choose to have an outlook of our experiences creating a collective strengthening within us rather than our experience in life weakening ourselves. And so the ways that we can kind of impose grit are, of course, doing kundalini yoga practices or any form of yogic practices, breathwork practices anything that's really going to work with the prana and the body. So the prana in the body determines like how much capacity we can handle. So when I talk about prana, I'm talking about life force. When I'm talking about life force, life force comes from the breath. So we can look at the way that we breathe and the way that we manage our breath moment to moment through all of these life experiences that determine how we build the capacity for our nervous system. And in particular, I talk about working with combo. So the combo medicine that I serve as a profound way to shift the nervous system and expand the nervous system.
1: Okay. So on the one hand, and I'm curious from both of you, it's a question for Taylor and Whitney. On the one hand, then it seems that the experience of being alive and opening our hearts and taking risks and just living a human life where we're going for it, so to speak, has the ability to build endurance or build grit or build resolve. But the interesting thing that I find, and I'm curious if either of you have experienced this, is I feel like sometimes when I've gone through a heartbreak or a perceived loss or a major challenge in my life, there's almost this a little bit of amnesia, if you will, of I start to freak out. I start to feel my state of being disintegrating. I start to feel myself falling into anxiety and stress. And it's almost as if I forget temporarily or have amnesia about what I've been through in the past and what I've survived. And it's almost like this weird thing that I have a forgetfulness in a way of like, oh, remember all the stuff you've lived through and survived and healed through? Why are you forgetting all that? And why are you freaking out right now? Do either of you experience that kind of like, I don't know if it's an amnesia or just forgetting what we've healed from and grown from.
2: It kind of reminds me of what I hear from mothers who have given birth and how they forget how painful it was. (laughs) Whereas uh, it's almost as if the human brain has this coping mechanism that forgets extreme experiences and what that's really like. And so when we're experiencing a lot of pain, we forget what it's like to not be in pain. And then when we're feeling... No pain, we can't really remember what pain feels like, yeah, I mean, I
0: think I used to experience that, Jason. I think I used to be like, "Oh my God, I've never had a heartbreak like this before, or oh God, I've never been so hurt by the thing that you said to me before, and At this point in my life, and I think as we grow in our practice, whatever our practice might be, we have to start communicating to ourselves and reminding ourselves that this pain belongs, this uncomfortability belongs, this space also belongs. Everything that's happening here in this moment belongs just as much as my joy belongs. And If I didn't have the capacity to experience the depth in this way that I'm experiencing myself, then I wouldn't be able to experience the joy that I'm able to experience in myself. I, at this point in my life, am able to pull myself up and out of whatever I may be experiencing really quickly. And then I'm reminded that it's not so bad. You know, maybe it's because my work with this particular medicine is a somatic experience, right? It's all in the somatic body and I am constantly taking myself through ordeals and pleasure. And I find that the pain-pleasure paradox has become a thin line. And it's really supported me in having enough levity to remind myself that whatever I'm feeling belongs. And I think that that's ultimately the state of the neutral mind that we want to be able to cultivate through diligent practice
2: anyway. Correct? I think that's incredibly important for people to hear because it feels like, since a big theme of our podcast is getting uncomfortable, one of our aims and something that we notice a lot through our work is that a lot of people are trying to avoid pain and they're looking for more pleasure. And it's interesting how I think a lot of us live our lives feeling like the pain is so bad, but A, it might be very neutral. Maybe pain and pleasure are are equally important in our lives, but also we have so much to learn through our pain just as much as we have to gain from our pleasure. And I think it's so important what you're saying here about that and also the role that breath plays in all of it and how it can not only help you reduce stress, but it keeps you very present and grounded and less judgmental about your experiences. Yeah, I completely agree with you.
1: I think for me too. You know, the cultural imperative of, I think, pleasure it spins into so many areas of life that you know the media and culture glamorizes. You know, we have obviously alcohol and drugs and pornography and fancy cars. I love fancy cars, but that's a whole other thing that I've had to decode for myself. Of like, why is that so important? I guess the materialism and the consumptive nature of our societal imperatives that are constantly telling us more, 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 more different, better. I feel like that mantra of more, different, and better is constantly—we're just bombarded by that messaging all of the time. And it's interesting when you have a presence practice, or as Whitney and Taylor, you both have alluded to, this idea that we're not making pleasure greater than our pain. We're not pushing away uncomfortable situations. We're not trying to get out of pain as quickly as possible. On the spiritual side of this— For me, that practice has been very much going against what I've been taught my entire life by society and culture to avoid, again, as we're saying, I'm just preaching to the choir, but avoid pain and seek pleasure all of the time. And the compartmentalization, though, that I've experienced, especially with my mental health, has been through especially childhood and teenage years of experiencing specific traumas in my life. And because of that cultural imperative to not feel pain or look at pain, just mentally compartmentalizing, compartmentalizing. And then in my adult life, digging into that through therapy and through plant medicine, which I definitely want to dig into that, looking at things that I was like, I did not know I buried this, this painful thing, this traumatic thing. I didn't know it was buried that deep in my consciousness. And that's been a fascinating cave to explore for me.
0: Yeah, I really feel you. And it's funny because I actually think we are on different sides of the coin a little bit, Jason. And I remember at age 15, I was very convinced that I needed to get a tattoo. And I got my first tattoo when I was 15. And then I started being heavily tattooed by the time I was 18 years old. And I didn't understand it conceptually or why I was so drawn to it, but I knew that I needed to take myself continually through these rites of passage in order to feel myself on a deeper level. And I kept taking myself through all of these various, very intensified journeys because it was not in the pleasure where I found my growth as a human or my wisdom. It was in the endurance of and the transformation of my pain. And this might go back to my father having a stroke when I was 15 and having my whole life flipped upside down and not ever feeling that pain until I processed it much later. It may very well be because I knew that I needed to feel some former pain, but it's in the ordeals. It's in the challenges. It's in the metaphorical mountaintops that I've found myself on top of after climbing for hours where I have found my deepest growth and I have always known that my growth is in the place where I find my most resistance, and therefore I have never been a pleasure seeker. And yet through the journey of my the grit that I've endured, I have been able to experience more pleasure in this life because of what I've put myself through, which is an interesting sort of paradox. And I don't know that that many people have done that or even think about it that way.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing in the reflection that it brings up for me, Taylor, is the decision to willfully and intentionally put ourselves into vastly uncomfortable situations or painful situations directly where we know there's going to be discomfort, we know there's going to be pain versus a person who sort of just waits for life to bring them those situations. Because obviously, being human, we know that we're not going to avoid discomfort as much as we try, as much as certain people try and avoid it. We know we're not going to avoid pain. But I think there's a different level when someone is willfully and intentionally seeking those situations and walking into them with courage and curiosity. That's super interesting to me. And I think in terms of All three of us have a yoga practice and a breathwork practice here, the three of us, Whitney Taylor and Jason, the listeners. Hopefully there's more than three listeners. Uh, (laughs) But I think the deeper level of psychotherapy, plant medicine, really taking a good hard, deep look at ourselves is something that a lot of people are absolutely frightened to do. And I'm always curious about that fear of why are people so afraid to look at themselves? And I'm curious if you both have experienced that in the past at any point of like those deeper layers of like, okay, we're going deep, but here's a layer that scares the shit out of me. Do I really want to go in that cave? Uh And how have you both pushed through those layers when you've experienced them?
2: Hmm. I think that's, again, one of the big themes of this. And one of the reasons we, if not the reason, we titled the podcast, This Might Get Uncomfortable, is that it can feel incredibly uncomfortable to go in that proverbial cave and have to go through some really hard situations in order to come out on the other side. And a lot of people, it seems, are either afraid, hesitant, or avoidant entirely of those type of situations, even though they may have heard that their lives or their state of beings may improve as a result. A lot of people are just wanting to stay more comfortable. Right? They're not willing to get uncomfortable even temporarily to make these shifts. And it's just an interesting thing. I think a lot of it is, is just about the lessons that we learn through our lives and the people that encourage us. And also hearing from people that go through these challenges and get through it. And we can kind of relate to them. I think that's why the power of story and community are so important. And It's also a great indicator of how community shapes us so much because some people are not exposed to people that can inspire them and motivate them and encourage them to get uncomfortable and what the benefits may be on the other side. I think that's one of the big reasons that I feel so compelled to do this podcast and bring on guests like Taylor to talk about it because it's an opportunity to expose people. But even with a podcast somebody has to be willing to listen, right? They might see the title of this and think, "Eh, I don't know if I'm getting uncomfortable. I'd rather listen to something that's going to entertain me the entire time. I'm not even willing to listen to a conversation about it. And it's also people are at so many different stages on their journeys. And I know that I've come a long way if I look back over my life, even over the past couple years, how much I've evolved. So I think it's important not to judge one another too about where people are at on their journeys. That's something I've certainly learned. I've gone through phases where I was very judgmental, like, oh, I can't believe that person's not willing to get uncomfortable. Like, What's wrong with them? And over time, I've been more accepting of where people are at and they can only know what they know and know what they've been exposed to. And this readiness idea too. Sometimes it takes time for somebody to even feel comfortable enough to get uncomfortable, if that makes sense.
0: And it takes a very strong nervous system to be willing to get uncomfortable. And going back to the nervous system, because in so many ways as an individual, all of my life, I've been courageous. I've been interested in exploring the world. I've been uh, fantastical. I've been deep diving. And then you put me in a romantic relationship, and that's where all my avoidant tendencies go. And it's like, let's see, my patterns are, how much can I serve you? So. I can serve you so well that you don't even have a moment to flip back and serve me and then see my vulnerabilities. And so over the years of really looking at, okay, well, how have I, my brave, experimental, outwardly wild self, been completely and totally avoidant and in delusion of getting uncomfortable in certain ways. And it has to do in relationship with an intimate partner. And so... As I've started to grow in that arena and really allow myself to be seen and allow myself to be supported and allowed myself to be held, allowed myself to be completely and totally broken and exposed over and over and over again, I realized like, okay, now I'm allowing myself to be seen. And now I'm allowing myself to get uncomfortable. Because what came natural to me was getting uncomfortable personally, but really diving to that razor's edge or walking on that razor's edge has been the largest growth in the relationship department. And so I think that that's where where a lot of our patterns lie in intimacy and allowing ourselves to be truly seen by another and getting uncomfortable there is some of the biggest work that we can possibly do.
1: Yeah, that is such a wonderful share, Taylor. I just want to acknowledge you for sharing those aspects of your journey. And I relate in a few different ways to that because I feel like you just opened a really beautiful space for a deeper share. And I also have an avoidant tendency in intimate relationships. We actually talked about that in an episode with our guest, Jason, when we were talking about how we show up in relationships. And as soon as I learned what an avoidant tendency it was, I was like, ding, 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 that's me. And To reflect back what you said in terms of really being cracked open and being super vulnerable with an intimate partner, one of the things I've observed, the foundation of my reticence to be vulnerable in certain ways, was being raised by a single mom and this idea that as a child, I had to be like the man of the house and I couldn't show weakness and I had to be strong for my mom because my dad wasn't there and he left us. And it was this pattern and this way of being from childhood. Of show no vulnerability, don't cry. Even though I've always been an extremely sensitive person, you know, cancer and a lot of water in my chart. Dig into that maybe if we want. But I guess my point is that I've also had a tendency in romantic relationships to not open up as fully as I wanted to because I didn't want to be perceived as weak. And I thought if I cry, if I show how fragile I am, if I have a breakdown in front of this woman, she's not going to trust me because she'll perceive me as weak. And I've had to really undo a lot of that over the years of allowing myself to really trust that I can be that vulnerable in front of a woman and she won't abandon me. But I wanted to piggyback on what you said because it was such a deep, vulnerable share. And it's something that I had to continually practice over and over again. I've had a lot of practice in relationships with that one.
0: Me too. Me too, Jason. I think a lot of us have. You know, it's like we want love so badly and we want love so deeply. And it's our human nature to connect and merge and find someone that we can spend our time with. And then when we find someone that we can spend our time with and we keep spending time with them, little things start coming up and then the little things are invitations to either show what's happening for us because we can't hide there. In an intimate romantic relationship dynamic, there is no hiding. And if you think you can hide, you are incorrect. That person can most certainly feel you if they're even remotely checked in. And so I think that we could all really honor ourselves and explore what it's like to just be all in, even if all in is like for 24 hours, we can give ourselves that opportunity to be uncomfortable, even if it's only meant to be 24 hours. And that in and of itself has been an incredible practice for me to just say, all right, I'm not going to have one foot outside and one foot inside anymore. I'm just going to put all feet in and see what happens while still having my feet on the ground. But one toe will no longer be out of the water, if you will.
1: Yeah. I mean, we hear that a lot about anything in life. I mean, are you fully committed to something? And I think sometimes I've heard that from relationship experts, quote unquote, or high performance coaches or people in the mind body space of like, you got to be all in, you got to be fully committed. It's an interesting line, right? When you bring this up about having both feet in the pool, if you will, because I think there are times that I've forced myself or tried to convince myself I was all in with, say, something career-wise or something in intimate relationship where, I don't know, it's I guess I'm asking a question of when can you trust the authenticity of the feeling that you're all in versus forcing yourself or convincing yourself you should be all in?
0: Okay. There's several types of people out there, and I love answering these questions because there are people that truly have the uh-huh, uh-uh in their gut. And I'm one of those people that have the uh uh-huh, uh-uh, but I'm also a recovering people pleaser. I have five planets in Libra. I mean, it's like a whole thing to say yes to things that I'm not wholefully into. And so one of the practices that I've been practicing over the last six years and I've integrated into my work is the very deep, profound ability to understand and agree to that which you are communicating to yourself and to others. And so if one can feel the uh uh-huh, uh-uh, like start to tune into the body. uh Uh-huh, my body feels uh uh-huh or uh uh-uh. If there's any uh uh-uh, I would not even go down that road or I would express that I'm having some resistance here. I'm interested in, let's say if it's in a relationship or in a dynamic with a person and you feel that little uh uh-uh, it may even be helpful to vocalize it with yourself. Say, I'm having a little resistance here. I would like to explore what that's like. It's not like I'm going to jump ship right now and I want to get to know what this dynamic is like and I want to get to know why I'm having that uh uh-uh. Rather than jumping ship just because you've got like a, uh, uh, or either convincing yourself that, well, this person is perfect on paper or this perfect is like the ideal person that I want someone to look like, or it should feel right. Why doesn't it feel right? So I'm just going to make it feel right. Instead of going into that, investigating that with yourself and the most vulnerable and uncomfortable thing too would be investigating that with another and see if they can handle your ability to say, I'm not clear with myself right now. I am doing my very best to get clear with myself and with you and what it means to fully put myself all into this. But there is something within me that is feeling a little hesitation. And even just communicating about that could even open up a pathway for certain people to dive deeper into intimacy and truly caring about one another. Because I remember there was a time where I briefly dated someone And I'll tell this I'm great at uncomfortable intimate stories. And we had this incredible connection. And it was very natural. Everything felt really right. And they did not live in the same city that I lived in. And he went back to the city that he was living in. And I received a text communication that was basically like, I can't do this. You're amazing. I'm not ready to love. I'm not available to get into this. And I took a deep breath and I read it and my heart dropped. And I was like thinking to myself, well, my experience is that I feel all in and my experience is that this is so right. And so I was like, okay, how can I put myself in this person's shoes and recognize that they're feeling anxiety and they're feeling fear? I simply wrote back, thank you for sharing this with me. I would really love to speak to you on the phone if you have a moment of availability. And so we jumped on the phone later that night and I just allowed him to tell me exactly how he was feeling. And I received absolutely everything that he had to say. And I said, I just need you to know I totally embrace you and accept you for everything that you're going through. And if this is what works for you and if this is what's best for you, I honor that. And I just want you to know that I'm not going anywhere and I want to be your friend and I'm here to support you as your friend. And just communicating that way from a place of love and openness and receptivity and not closing my heart down, nothing changed. Nothing actually changed with the relationship dynamic. That person just needed to be able to express what was uncomfortable for them, what they were going through, their hesitancy with me. And almost as if they could trust that that was safe with me as well. Sometimes that's a way that we
2: can really grow deeper with someone. Do you feel me? That's really beautiful. And what a great example to listen to because it's so interesting that as you both have been talking about relationships, I have a, what they call, well- It's a little actually unclear because I think you can evolve over time, but typically I've been in in an anxious attachment style and have been moving my way towards a secure attachment style. I'm kind of always fascinated by relationship dynamics and anxious people tend to attract a lot of avoidant people. So there have been so many times where I've felt rejected by men or I've been with men that have struggled to communicate with me and I've often really wanted a lot of communication from them but I think a lot of my anxious tendencies would get in my own way because I would start to feel like I was always doing something wrong or I'd be very timid and afraid to speak out. And just listening to you share that storyteller shows the power of communication. And I think what happens is we do tend to close our hearts when we assume that somebody is saying something and it's all about interpretation, right? So in your case, you could have easily gotten offended and called up your girlfriends and started to complain about it and talk about how you, you know, all the bad things. And we see so many examples of that. We see this on reality TV and we see this on social media. People are bashing their romantic partners that often in the past, like this guy is such a jerk or this woman is, you know, just put whatever word you want to insert in there that's offensive. And, and then we, We create this cultural narrative that people of either the opposite sex or whatever we're attracted to, that they're out to get us or they're going to hurt us or they're all like this. I feel like as a society, tend to view our romantic partners as... Somebody that we're battling against, right? Versus like somebody that we're in a true loving relationship with, with open communication and acceptance. And so often our egos get in the way too. And it's so hard to communicate when two egos are at play and one person hasn't learned the tools to step back and hold space for one person, even when they feel hurt. I just love that example that you gave because it's so inspiring that sometimes there's so much more behind somebody's words. And if we can try to not make assumptions based on our previous experiences, we can learn so much and it opens up the door for a much stronger relationship. And not only that, it sets a different precedent, meaning that even if that relationship doesn't work out with you, you might be helping them work through things that they need for their next relationship. And that's such an amazing gift to give another person.
0: Absolutely. And we all know that we are going to get hurt just as much as we are going to experience joy and we are going to experience pleasure and support. We are at times in our life in a relationship going to be hurt. But if we can remind ourselves that that person's not actually doing anything to me and If I allow that person's truth and their honesty, however honest they think that it is for themselves in the moment to wash through me, my relationship with myself is secure. And I can allow it to wash through me and I can embrace whatever is happening for the person in front of me and nothing's happening to me. This is happening as an opportunity for my growth in the place where I find my resistance and we can then find relationships really, really inspiring. And even like the little painful moments, the ouchies and all of those little things can be embraced. And we can kind of use those little ouchy moments to remind ourselves where we need a little bit more love for who it is that we are and how amazing that we are. And our validation of self doesn't come from someone else thinking that we are great. And I've had the opportunity in the recent years to have like men tell me or, or people tell me how great it is to work with me or how great it is to be treated from me or how much they love me. And I have to remind people that they are experiencing what is inside of them. And I'm just allowing them to experience the totality of who they are. And it's not to deflect a compliment, but it really is everything that we experience in ourselves is a reflection of exactly who it is that we are. And so that's really the work here. That's really where we can start to get uncomfortable and do the work and realize our worth and realize our values. And I think the reason why we're talking here today is through medicine work and you're interviewing me because of the work that I do. And all of this culminates to this very thing that I'm talking about now, which is the relationship to the self, to recognize that love is an experience of oneself within oneself. And while certain people may activate particular things inside of us, it lives inside of you, the experiencer, the receiver, and nobody can ever take that away from you.
1: I think this is so fascinating, Taylor. And and I love that you're talking about the journey inward. Again, going back to, I think, the cultural societal imperative that is externalized everything, externalizing love, externalizing fulfillment externalizing things that we feel we need to have to complete us in life or this sense of incompletion. And I want to tie it back to the medicine journey, because certainly one of the things in addition to the breath work and the yoga and the psychotherapy and the things that the three of us on this episode here on the mics are so passionate about, the other layer Something that you've been facilitating and studying and been a student of and facilitator of has been combo. And I had the great pleasure of receiving this from you about, was it three weeks or a month ago at this point? And it was such a wonderful experience for me that I can certainly share some layers to that. But I wanted to give you some space to educate our dear listener on what this ceremony is, why it's so important, and what it's all about, because a lot of people haven't heard of this medicine and you're just such a wonderful ambassador and facilitator for it. So will you tell our listeners about Combo, why you were drawn to it and what the whole thing is about?
0: Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about this medicine and where it comes from. Combo medicine. So it's spelled K-A-M-B-O. A lot of people think it looks like or is spelled like the combo meal. It's not spelled like the combo meal. It's the Cambo is a way that certain people pronounce it. And this medicine is from a frog called the Philomedusa bicolor frog. And it's a really beautiful green frog from the Amazon jungle. So they live in many, many parts of the Amazon. You can find them in Brazil and Peru. And the medicine in and of itself is the secretion off of the back of the frog. The secretion is produced for a mechanism for the frog in the wild as a protection. And it only protects the animal if, for instance, if they are put in the mouths of another animal, it makes them spit the frog out. It makes them not so tasty. And so the misnomer and the misunderstanding is that this medicine is a poison or a venom. It is not. People think that it's a poison because of some of the body responses that occur, but I want to tell people they are not being poisoned when they are receiving combo. This particular medicine has 20 different bioavailable peptides inside of the secretion and peptides are short chain amino acids and these amino acids have the ability to cross the blood brain barrier and The amino acids act as brain nutrition ultimately, and they bind to receptor sites in the brain that are needed. There are many, many different peptides, and I'll talk about this one particular peptide. I'm talking about a lot now because we're going through a pretty peculiar time on the planet where people are concerned about a virus. And this will go down in history as a very interesting time on our planet. But this particular peptide that I'm referring to is called dermaceptin. And the dermaceptin peptide has the capacity to break through encapsulated virus membrane walls and eradicate viruses, bacterias, pathogens, protozoas, yeast, parasites, fungus. I think I said everything. That's just one of the peptides. There's many types of septins, and dermaseptin is one of the peptides inside of the secretion. And so this medicine in and of itself can really help a lot of people that have cancer, Alzheimer's, chronic illness, AIDS, herpes. There's Lyme disease patients that I'm treating. So many, many different people with major disease and illnesses can highly benefit from combo because of the dermaseptin peptide and so these various peptides are being scientifically researched now and of course science doing what they do are trying to isolate the various peptides with not nearly as much success as the naturally occurring peptide inside of the secretion but nonetheless they are having success in pharmacology by reproducing some of these peptides for pharmaceutical medication. And so there's many lists of pharmaceutical medications that have the synthetically derived peptides. And so we know that these peptides are super effective because they're being utilized in pharmacology. But the interesting thing is if you take a frog out of its environment, it's not going to be able to produce its secretion. So say you take the frog from the wild and put it into a cage in a lab, it will not produce its secretion because it doesn't need to protect itself out in nature. So these frogs need to stay in the jungle, in their environment to continue to produce their healing medicine. And so for many, many, many hundreds of years, this medicine has been used in the jungle for what we call hunting magic or lifting panema There's also been many kind of secret women's traditions with this medicine as well for fertility and infertility, even birth and abortion process. And so the men and the women would often use this medicine to increase their agility, their speed, their response time prior to going hunting in the jungle for their food. And so it would make them undetectable to their prey. They would also use this in the tribes for behavioral correction. If any of the tribes members were kind of going a little cuckoo and unsupportive for the rest of the tribe, they would use combo. And then naturally, combo makes you have a more harmonious flow of spirit. And so it would help with behavioral correction in with the tribes members. And so they would put it on very little children and elderly people. It would keep them safe from malaria various types of disease that were contracted in the jungle. And so now we flash forward 2020, and we've got Westerners using this medicine. And so this medicine should only be administered by someone who is highly trained and highly skilled because the physical body responses are quite unique. And so I have to preface by saying, please, if you're going to work with combo work with someone that is a highly trained professional. But we as Western people are living in this, like we're all in LA. And so we're in a toxic, environmentally overloaded reality where we've got electromagnetic frequencies bombarding in every direction. How many Wi-Fi signals do we all have in our own Wi-Fi connections. I mean, it's intense on top of the pollution, on top of the kind of psychological filament and the psychological garbage that's happening here in the world. And we have a lot to deal with. We're constantly overloaded by technology. And so our health in many ways is, I don't want to use the word decreasing, but many people were finding the weaker ones physiologically and the stronger ones physiologically. And just because you may have a weaker constitution doesn't mean that you are a weak human. It simply means that whatever's happening and bombarding you from the outside, your system doesn't have a strong enough uh, nervous capacity to handle what's going on. And so This is where medicines from the jungle can really be utilized because this is a somatic medicine. And so not only is it clearing viruses, pathogens, protozoas, yeast, bacteria, but it also works very heavily with the psychology of the person. And so I find that when I work with protocol and when I serve people a protocol of combo medicine and when they consistently work with me. We can work through the physiological issues that a person may be having, and then we can continue to work deeper into the layers based on what's happening with the emotional state, based on then what's happening with the subconscious mind patterns. And so if a person sticks with me long enough and really works with this medicine, we can start to unravel major patterns of the subconscious mind. And the experiences that they would otherwise have continued to repeat in their life, they find themselves no longer participating in. This includes drug and alcohol abuse and sex addiction or love addiction or the need to fulfill something outside of oneself, which is known as the hungry ghost. And so I find that working with combo can really support a person in gaining what is called our sovereignty of self. And we can really understand what it feels like to generate our own energy from an internal place. And thus, our career improves, our relationships improve, our relationship to self improve. Our prosperity shifts, so on and so forth. So that's kind of my little download on that for the moment.
1: That was an amazing summary, an incredible summary. And I just want to say really quickly that I had the beautiful pleasure of finally saying yes to Taylor. Taylor had invited me to experience this medicine two years ago, over two years ago, when I had first learned she was facilitating it. And Again, we go back to this idea of readiness. I was doing my own journeys with DMT and mushrooms and more recently ayahuasca. And I think as a result of having some of those healing journeys with psychedelic plant medicine, I finally felt like this was the next step for me to experience the combo with Taylor so beautifully facilitating. So for me, one of my biggest fears, well, two biggest fears that I experienced and had the opportunity to overcome through doing this was number one, my tendency to want to control and know what's happening. Like that's been a consistent thing through any plant medicine that I've done or any kind of psychedelic or spiritual medicine has been, you're trying to control things too much. Like that's been a theme over and over again. So by doing combo, that came up for me again before our ceremony, Taylor was like, oh, you're trying to control this too much. You're doing too much research. You're asking her all these questions. This is you trying to control things. And again, the research thing we talked about at the beginning of this episode, you're trying to somehow resist or control the situation by knowing as much as you can. And the second thing was vomiting is one of the most uncomfortable experiences for me. And I knew that that was likely going to happen. And it did happen. But the interesting thing was that once I just fully surrendered to the experience with you, and I just allowed allowed it to fully happen, the fear went away. And I think it's such a wonderful lesson that I keep getting most recently with you through Combo is let go of control, surrender fully and say yes to whatever it is that you experience. And the hesitance, the fear, whatever's coming up, it dissolves when you let go. And so it was just such a wonderful medicinal thing on a mental and spiritual level that I experienced with you.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating when people are sitting with the medicine, you will experience the microcosm of your life as you need to see it in that moment in time. Because the most interesting journey with this is that this is not a psychedelic medicine. And so I've had some people think that they are going to leave their body. And I invite them to remember that this is not a place of leaving your body, but this is a place of inhabiting your body even more than you ever have before. And the sensations that one experience is crying, shaking, laughing, sweating profusely, vomiting, needing to go to the toilet. And if you Think about all of those responses. Where do they come from? We know that when the nervous system is shaken up, we could experience some of that. You know, let's say you're about to go on stage and you're going to do a stand up comedy show, Jason, and maybe you start to sweat under your arms. That's the nervous system doing its best to recalibrate and reattune itself to what you're about to stretch yourself into. And so I believe that if we can self-impose these moments of stretching into a new expression of our body glove, so reminding ourselves that the sweating belongs, the laughing belongs, the shaking belongs, the vomiting belongs, the pooping belongs, all of this belongs then we're able to stretch ourselves into a new version of who it is we are. And that's why we can actually experience very obvious and physiological changes immediately from working with this medicine. And the deeper I go, the more the layers go into a person. But I feel you.
1: I'm curious about something. Whitney, I've never asked you this question. And it's interesting because I feel like I've asked you a lot of questions over the course of our friendship, but it just came up kind of naturally through this conversation with Taylor is, have you ever like wanted to go and do ayahuasca or combo or DMT or felt drawn to any of these plant medicines? Because we never really like, hey, Whitney, you want to go to Peru and do this stuff? Like, I'm just curious what your feelings are on all of it, because we've never really gone into that from your perspective.
2: I feel like we have before, but. Have we? <laughs>
1: My memory's maybe not serving me.
2: I imagine it came up in your episode, and I feel like the two of us have certainly talked about it, but maybe I just haven't expressed it very clearly. I'm certainly curious about it. I'm definitely not opposed to it. I just haven't felt like I needed it or wanted it that much and usually feel like it just kind of happens organically or there's like a bigger push for it I suppose. I guess it hasn't come up to the extent of somebody saying like presenting it to me in a way that I couldn't say no to if that makes sense. Like I certainly know all these are accessible and I'm grateful for that. I know so many people that could offer me a lot of these different healing opportunities and I I think the answer is I just haven't felt called to do it yet. It's almost like a neutral feeling about it. I guess is best to describe it. Where I'm open to it but haven't felt like it's been I don't want to say the right time (laughs) based on this whole conversation, but it just hasn't felt like I, so hard to express it, I suppose. I think the easiest way to say it is I just feel a little bit neutral. I don't feel like any sense of like urgency or necessity in my life up to this point.
1: Yeah. No, I was just curious because it's obviously something that seems to be becoming more and more in the mainstream conversation. And the thing that I'm bolstered by is the, inclusion of um, mainstream medical organizations. Like I was reading recently that in the last few years, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland has had an increasing amount of funding for their psychedelic research program. They have an entire program dedicated to MDMA, psilocybin mushrooms, and other psychedelics for treatments of PTSD, trauma, depression, and of course, MAPS, the MAPS organization. We can link to all of these studies in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. But I'm bolstered by just how much more mainstream research is being done showing that plant medicine can be an effective treatment for all of these mental and emotional traumas. And the curiosity I have, Taylor, I'm not sure if I asked you this, Taylor, is obviously they have a lot of things like ayahuasca or iboga or mushrooms on the schedule of illicit drugs in the US, like they're technically illegal. Where does Combo fall into that category? Is it even recognized by the US government, by the DEA at all? Is it even a discussion with them?
0: Combo is 100% legal all over the world. And the only place that there is restriction is in Brazil. You may not advertise yourself as a Combo practitioner unless you are an indigenous person. So the indigenous have rights in Brazil, and you are not able to advertise. But everywhere else, all over the world, Cambo is completely and totally legal.
1: Okay, that's good to know, because if any of the listeners are curious about exploring it with you or exploring the possibility of doing it. It's good to know it's legal because I feel like I've talked to friends sometimes that are like, yeah, but what if we get caught? And I'm like, I've never heard of the DAA storming an ayahuasca ceremony. I haven't heard that story yet. But I do understand some people's hesitance or reticence around the legalities of it. So it's incredible to hear that it is fully legal here in the US and other countries as well. That's great. So to me, the thing that I'm, again, going back to seeing Places like Boulder, Colorado, seeing places like the Bay Area looking at making psilocybin mushrooms and other plant medicines fully legal. It's such a wonderful time, I think, we're living in from the rise of a lot of these medicines, certainly in Western culture around the 60s and 70s, and now here in the 2020s, seeing more mainstream access. It makes my heart feel good just because I've experienced so much healing with all of the plant medicines I've done. And I just love that the stigma. Is being broken down around these things that I think for a long time there's been this idea of like oh you're a drug user it's like there's a big big leap between someone who is perhaps you know addicted to heroin and someone who's using plant medicines to explore their psyche and subconscious and heal deep traumas within them so I just love that that stigma is being broken of not just lumping people in a category of being a quote drug user but using things mindfully and with intention to heal themselves I just love that that's happening.
0: Absolutely. And this is why medicine carriers are very, very important and way showers through because with, with deeper psychedelics like ayahuasca and LSD and psilocybin, if you're taking heavy doses of such, it's really, really important to have the support system that you need for proper integration. Because these medicines may show you something, whether you are quote unquote ready to see it or not, ready to acknowledge it or not. And having some sort of way shower to support you through the journey of your seeing, because you can't unsee what you've seen through these types of journeys is really, really supportive. And, you know, this is where something like microdosing can really come into great benefit for the individual wanting to explore the use of these medicines without needing a way shower to guide them through a deeper, more transformative ceremony because the brain does drastically shift. And with my experience of microdosing psilocybin in various times over the years, I find that the brain does shift and it does stay and it does truly repattern the neurotransmitters in the brain. And there's not like this need to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Well, I need to keep doing it. You will find that the intelligence of these medicines will start to communicate to you and you can have a co-creative relationship to them. And it's almost on a deeper intuitive level, it'll communicate to you when it's time to do it or slow down. And I love the fact that the psilocybin mushroom actually told me that I needed to stop my bulletproof coffee addiction. And it told me once and I stopped. (laughs) I never had the desire to do it again. And when I have it, it tastes terrible. And so psilocybin has taught me immensely since we're talking about these sort of scheduled substances. and. It's a very interesting psychology that we have had built over the multiple decades that these substances have been illegal and the stories that we have created around them being, well, this isn't safe or crazy people do them or this is what hippies do or you're not a successful member of society or a, like a true participant in civilization. If you utilize these substances, you're an outlier. You're an outcast. And these are all concepts that have been placed on these substances with complete unfair, with unfair judgments, because it's not about the substance. It is always about the user. And so when we're talking about drugs and we're talking about substances, we have to understand how to become an intelligent and a mature user of the things that we choose to participate with in life. This includes coffee. This includes exercise habits. As long as we become an intelligent user of such things that we participate in, where we're co-creating a relationship and we're actually feeling ourselves on a deeper level, then we can really These higher intelligent beings that have been brought here on planet Earth to raise the vibratory consciousness on this planet.
1: It's so well said. And it reminds me of this conversation I remember having years and years and years ago with my mom, I think in my 20s, where we were talking about drugs in general. You know, everything's a drug. When I have a cacao ceremony and I'm changing my brain chemistry or having a matcha green tea or all the endorphins and testosterone from a hard workout. I'm literally changing the chemical state of my brain and what is flowing through my bloodstream. So, in that case, to piggyback what you were saying, most anything that is changing the chemistry in our body or our brain or our state of being could be considered a drug, right? I mean, in a general sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if we think that all of us have not been, quote unquote, addicted to something, we don't even need to put alcohol, drugs, substances in a category. We have all found ourselves needing to go for a fix to train our nervous system to feel a little better. And so we have to get our mind out of, well, that's bad, and then that's good. And as long as I go to that good thing, then I'm not going over there to do the bad thing. But the truth is, is that we are still training our glandular system to secrete Every time we reach for the thing, even if it's healthy for us or supportive, if we reach for that thing and we make a plan or a schedule, like if we enter into that thing and we've told ourselves we're doing that thing, then our glandular system is secreting and automatically starting to calm the nervous system. And then we've told ourselves, we've trained ourselves that we can feel a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more comfortable in ourselves because now we have this thing to look forward to. And so we've all been addicts in our own right, even if it's for a moment in time. And so the invitation here is to really start creating a highly intelligent relationship with ourselves and our desires and our motivations.
1: As I'm looking at the gluten-free cookies in my cabinet, staring me down right now that I've been thinking about after we finish this podcast, my brain has been going cool. And you talk about addiction, and I realize that I'm still unraveling my sugar addiction a bit, especially when it comes to the emotional side of things. But I'm glad that you brought that up. I think it allows us all to perhaps have more compassion for each other and the fact that on some level, perhaps most of us have been addicted to one thing or multiple things at, at different times in our lives. And I'm curious as we wrap up Taylor, are there any key resources or books or things that you could point our listener to that might come up around combo or plant medicine or key books or key things that you've read that have really been assistive in your journey through this?
0: Sapo Save My Soul by Peter Gorman and Ayahuasca in My Blood, which I don't actually remember the writer of that one. And I would say that additionally While I do support people in reading and exploring about combo, because I'm a combo practitioner, I would say that having the self experience of this medicine is the most profound thing that we can do. And, you know, we're in the Aquarian age now here, which is the age of self experience, the age of self initiation. And we are stepping into this time where conventional learning is no longer relevant. Like We are already seeing it where in this sort of closed down society, conventional learning is no longer relevant. And so we are now given the opportunity to step into this very profound form of experiential learning that we will now have for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Aquarian age. And so what I do recommend is that you find a mentor or someone you can trust. And if you feel the calling to be guided through something like this, talk to that person, make time with that person to connect with them and create a heart-to-heart and an authentic relationship to them And they can show you the way so you can explore yourself and have a very profound self-experience. And my writings and my documents are highly informative should someone want to go down exploring my rabbit hole.
1: Okay, perfect segue. It's like, that was just the perfect segue. Your rabbit hole, Taylor, is at tayloriwalker.com, T-A-Y-L-O-R-E-Y-E. Walker, W-A-L-K-E-R.com. We will link to the books that Taylor referenced, her website, her Instagram, all of her wonderful resources. If you want to explore the option of her mentoring you with combo medicine or Kundalini Yoga or life coaching, all the brilliant and beautiful things that Taylor facilitates in this world, we will have all those resources in the show notes for this episode at WellEvator.com. Again, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can also follow us on Instagram. And Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And we have a new resource that we launched recently a brand new PDF ebook for times like these. It is called From Chaos to Calm. And it is holistic strategies for mind, body, and spirit to deal with states of crisis and calm, like the one we have been experiencing recently. And we have given you this ebook. We have a new program that we are going to be launching. And giving you all the resources to deal with stress and anxiety so you can manage your mental and emotional wellness in a holistic and complete way so taylor we are just so so grateful to have you here and sharing your wisdom sharing the combo medicine with our listeners and it's just always a pleasure to dig deep with you
0: oh thanks
2: jason love you so much really grateful for you thank you so much taylor this has been really wonderful thank you whitney thanks for having me on